0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. That is a way better response than I get with my first period every morning, so (laughs) that's refreshing. I appreciate that. About a month ago, I was in the checkout line at Publix and happened to see a special edition of Life magazine entitled, Jesus Who do you say that I am? As many of you know, I'm about to become a full-time seminary student, and so naturally my interest was piqued, and I bought the magazine, and I opened it up, and I read beliefs about Jesus that ranged from Jesus the myth, to Jesus the man, to Jesus the Messiah. In the end, the author of the article summed things up in the following way. He said, we see Jesus as many different people, dutiful son, ascetic, revolutionary, sage, martyr, depending on our personal beliefs and indeed our personal needs. A great many of us, Christians and not, want Jesus on our team. We want to be his teammate. We want to be like him. We want him to be like us. Believe it or not, the first, uh, when I read this the first time, uh, what I thought immediately was of hamburgers. Back in the early 70s, the marketing people at Burger King developed an ad campaign with the slogan, have it your way. This is based on the fast food chain's willingness to tailor orders to the individual tastes and preferences of its customers. And it strikes me that our pluralistic, relativistic, hyper-individualistic society has basically said the same thing about Jesus. Have him your way. In light of this, the fact that there were a dozen or so different opinions about uh, Jesus in Life Magazine really isn't that surprising to me. But the question that I think it forces Christians to ask is this, do we, in our efforts to be sensitive or peaceable, ever say the same thing about our Lord? Have him your way. If we do this, we stray from the apostolic faith and stand in need of correction. Our gospel reading this morning provides such correction. And reminds us of two fundamental truths. Number one, Jesus is the one who tells us who he is and what he came to do. And number two, Jesus is the one who tells us who we are and what we ought to do. And so we return to the question who do you say that I am? This is what Jesus asked his disciples six days before his transfiguration, and it is the starting point for our journey up the mountain this morning. Matthew 16, 13 through 16 reads like this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Have you ever paused to think that it was God in human form, the one by whom and for whom all things were created, who was asking creatures that he had made, Do you know who I am? It was important that this question be settled in the hearts and minds of the disciples. Jesus was about to complete the work the Father had given him to do, and the disciples were about to continue that work, carrying the gospel message to the ends of the earth. Peter answered Jesus' question with supernatural clarity. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Notice in the passage he's called Simon Peter, not just Peter. Because in this next uh, bit, he's going to be rock and swain reed. Moments later, when Jesus began to tell the disciples how he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die and then be raised again on the third day, Peter did what a disciple was never to do to his master. He openly rebuked him. Jesus sharply rebuked Peter in turn, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The rebuke of Peter stands as a rebuke to anyone who would try to add to or take away from what Jesus taught about who he is and what he came to do. Jesus was revealing some hard but important truths to his disciples about what he must do and what they must do if they were to follow him. The time was right to establish in the most definitive way possible the things he had been telling them, and this is what he did according to the highest legal standard set for the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so our gospel this morning begins, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem the events of the transfiguration would have made some things about Jesus immediately clear to Peter, James, and John. First, Jesus' claim to be God was true. See, the disciples had seen Jesus exercise divine power. He had walked on water. He had calmed the sea. He had made the lame to walk and given sight to the blind. He had raised the dead and cast out demons with his word. The disciples had heard Jesus make divine claims. Jesus said things like, Your sins are forgiven you. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. But now the disciples were given a glimpse of his divine nature. The Gospel of Matthew records his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Mark wrote, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Let us be clear that the Gospel writers are not just saying, Oh look, Jesus is glowing! they were using inadequate human language to describe something ineffable, eternal. I can almost see the disciples on their knees in complete astonishment, uttering to themselves, oh, my God, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God is with us. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appear and begin talking with Jesus. Long ago, Moses had climbed a mountain to meet with God. Elijah, too, had climbed the same mountain to meet with God. Now, Moses and Elijah are on a mountain meeting with Jesus. The disciples would have recognized what they were seeing. This is a theophany. And Jesus is at the very center of it. Jesus' claimed to be God was undeniably true. The disciples also heard clearly what Jesus had come to do. Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus about the death he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus was not going to tarry in a tabernacle made by Peter. Sorry, Peter. He was going to descend the mountain so that he could ascend the cross and lead a new exodus because that's what departure means, exodus. And he would liberate those who believe in his name from the bondage of sin and death. These things, I think, would have been clear to the disciples very, very quickly. But there are things, other things, about Jesus and his transfiguration that Peter, James, and John would not understand until much later. This may be why Jesus instructed them on the way down the mountain, tell, Do not tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. But eventually as the Holy Spirit guided them into all truth, the disciples would have remembered things about that day and realized that they had seen types and shadows giving way to the one those types and shadows had pointed to all along. As 1 Corinthians 13:10 says, for when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. We see this in our Old Testament reading and our epistle this morning. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says that the events and prophetic utterances of the Old Testament are naturally veiled from our understanding, in the same way that the face of Moses was veiled when he came down from Sinai and communicated the will of God to the people of Israel. But the coming of Jesus removes that veil. Because the story of Israel and its entire scriptural tradition find their fulfillment in him. Just as significantly, the sense of awe that the disciples felt on the mountaintop, because of the glory and majesty of Jesus, would eventually grow into an equally deep awe of his incredible condensation. Oh, that's not condensation, condescension. His humility, his obedience, his sacrifice, his servanthood, all wrapped within the unfathomable love of God expressed in the incarnation of his Son. Realizations like this would have compelled them to write things like we love because he first loved us. The transfiguration became an anchor point for what the apostles believed and taught about Jesus. Peter would write about it in his second letter to the church. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased." we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We can almost hear John recalling the transfiguration when we read the prologue to his gospel and the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. The fathers aren't too keen on this, but I often wonder when Peter sees the Word become flesh, tabernacling amongst them, I wonder if it was his Jewish instinct to start building tabernacles. That's the way God visited the people when they were in their sojourn in the wilderness. We beheld his glory, John says, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The disciples lived with Jesus and knew him intimately. They saw him display basic human needs. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He became tired. They saw him display basic human emotions. He showed compassion. He felt sorrow. He became troubled. Yet they also saw him on the mountain. The transfiguration would come to undergird one of the most important truths that we have about Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully man. This is what the Apostle Paul is affirming when he writes in Colossians 2, In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily as the faith delivered once for all to the saints was passed down from generation to generation, there were many who rose up to challenge the apostles' witness to the question, who do you say that I am? In the fourth century, the Arians would proclaim that Jesus was not God but a man. And there was a time when he was not. And faithful recipients of the apostolic faith, like St. Athanasius, said no to that, declaring that Jesus, that I know as my Redeemer, cannot be less than God. Brothers and sisters, it matters that Jesus is God. My problems and your problems and the problems of humanity run far too deep for a man to heal. We need Jesus as our high priest. As the author of Hebrews says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The docetists also rose up and proclaimed that though Jesus was God, he seemed to be a man. Just seemed to be. And faithful recipients of the apostolic faith, like Ignatius of Antioch, who was a disciple of John, again said no to that, reaffirming what John had said in his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Brothers and sisters, it matters that Jesus was a man. When we suffer and ask ourselves, where is God in all of this? We hear the testimony of the apostles as it echoes down through the ages. He is with us. And what the poet said is true. In every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows had a part The Apollinarians tried to take the middle road by saying Jesus was a man, but not completely. They said he was both God and man, but his will was divine only. Faithful recipients of the apostolic faith, like Gregory of Nazianzus, said no to that, declaring that what is not assumed is not healed. Brothers and sisters, it matters that Jesus in all things was made like us, uniting to himself a complete human nature. I don't know about you, but I need my mind as well as my body renewed by the blood of Christ. There was only one instruction given on the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to him. And so as disciples of Christ, we too must listen to everything he says. When he tells us that wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, we should listen. When he tells us that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, we should listen. And when we listen, and live lives of obedience to Him, we may find ourselves in a position to speak. And speak we must, but we must speak the truth, as Paul says, in love. Not the truth without love, lest we become like a gong or a clanging cymbal. Not love without the truth. If Such thing even exists, for love, Paul says, is not self-seeking, but rejoices in the truth. In a practical sense, we must cultivate the willingness and the ability to disagree without being disagreeable. This is a part of what it means to be the fragrance and aroma of Christ in the world. And when opposition comes, we must pray for the ability to stand firm in the grace and truth that comes only in the person of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, let us praise God for those in every generation in whom Christ has been honored. and Let us pray that we may have the grace to glorify Christ in our own day, for he lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit. One God, forever and ever. Amen.